Welcome to the Commune Podcast. My name is Jeff Krasnow. I am fresh from the dentist chair, so I can't actually feel my mouth, but it seems to be producing intelligible sounds. If not, let me know. Today on the show, we have an excerpt from Danielle Laporte's new Communiversity program, Spiritual Essentials. Here's a quick, fun story about Danielle before we dive in. So some six years ago, I was asked to be part of the Super Soul 100, a group hand-selected by Oprah Winfrey of, quote, 100 innovators and visionaries who are aligned on a mission to move humanity forward, end quote. Now, given the other members of this group, which include Brene Brown, Ianla Van Zandt, and Zendaya, I've always considered myself number 99. Regardless, this group was asked to assemble on one Sunday in a warehouse on Oprah's lot for a photograph. And when Oprah asks, the response is generally affirmative. So there I was, nervously shuffling around the set, quite literally bumping into Ava DuVernay, Esther Perel, Sophia Bush, and other luminaries. And the photographer was scurrying around and placing everyone in the frame. And I was balanced precariously on an apple box just behind Oprah, summoning all my calm to avoid toppling onto the queen like some drunk sentry. I began to list a little bit to the left, and I heard a voice, pick a gaze point and you'll be fine. I looked up and in a moment of darshan, beheld the most sparkling eyes I'd ever witnessed in my life. Are, are you Danielle Laporte? I, I sputtered. Smile, she said calmly, and the photo snapped. I look like the cat that ate the canary in that photo. Uh, in any case, this serendipitous meeting was the beginning of a wonderful friendship. Danielle has offered me countless teachings, and her new community course, Spiritual Essentials, is brimming with them. Now, if you're a regular listener to this program, you often hear me talk about the treasure trove of online video courses over in Commune membership. Well, if membership is where you can discover this wide variety of daily lessons for well-being, then Communiversity is where you dig deeper into a particular area of inquiry. Now, Danielle's Communiversity course, Spiritual Essentials, is a five-week inquiry into the nature of your own spiritual practice. As you will hear Danielle discuss, she had a moment of clarity where she realized that her dedication to self-help had become an exercise in self-criticism and a mile-high spiritual checklist. So if you feel like you might be ready for a process of spiritual rediscovery or decluttering, I recommend visiting onecommune.com essentials to learn more. Spiritual Essentials includes more than 10 hours of all new lessons like what you're about to hear, plus worksheets and weekly live calls with Danielle to get your questions answered. Our first semester, so to speak, begins September 25th, but I'm sure it will be the first of many. So head over to onecommune.com essentials if this excerpt sparks your interest. And with that, I present to you author, speaker, poet, Danielle Laporte.
who am I to talk about consciousness? Who are you, lady? Talk about the spiritual things. Uh, it's probably useful to know what informs my perspective. I have never had a near-death experience. I do not come from a lineage of gurus. I'm not ordained in any religion. I have not made any formal vows, not to any kind of uh, organized religion. I have not done a three-year retreat. I am not a PhD, nor do I play one on Instagram. I used to run a think tank. I ran a think tank in Washington, D.C. for future studies. That was weird. I had first level security clearance at the Pentagon. I have had plenty of therapy. Please buy my course so I can pay for all my therapy. I have had Jungian therapy. I have had Gestalt therapy. I've had a Jewish Buddhist psychotherapist. He is one of my favorites. Um, most of my girlfriends have had a ton of therapy, which means I have gotten therapy by proxy. You know, you say, so what did she tell you about him projecting onto you? Oh my God, that's brilliant. And then you go home and you use the technique on your people, you know? I have experienced a bona fide dark night of the soul. Panic attacks, anxiety, suicidal ideation for a period of my life. My psychotherapist called it a living death, could not have agreed more. There has been loss and divorce, and I have been on the receiving end of cancel culture. I've worked with a lot of shamans and energy healers. There's one healer in particular who has been my greatest teacher, and she lives a very private, monk-like life. And her teaching, her name is V.S., V.S., her teaching and training informs almost all of my esoteric perspective now. We work together to create our meditation and ritual kits from karma to energy cleansing. So her wisdom and perspective is woven into all of the spiritual essentials. I've had some very significant, very moving mystical experiences in my life, but I don't really talk much about them to anybody. Um, mostly because there aren't words. <laughs> uh, so I may have, you know, touched the infinite a few times, but bottom line, I love bottom line, is I'm still here and I got to do my laundry and I post a lot to Instagram. So here we are. I consider myself a seeker, but I'm actually trying to be less of a seeker and just trying to be more. Not be more, but just be, just be. By practical definition, I'm a writer, but I don't even really consider myself a writer, even though I've written five books, many, many courses. So I'm a seeker who talks about what I found. So everything you're going to hear is my lived experience. It's the only thing I can do to be of service, really. Tell you about my journey, let you know what I found. Um, everything you're about to hear is what I've been taught and what I resonate with. It's the stuff that has actually worked for me. You're going to hear a lot of different philosophical, spiritual, theological influences in spiritual essentials. You will be hearing from Krishnamurti. Course in Miracles has really helped me transition from uh, Christianity to cosmic Christianity. Adyashanti, Tantra, Buddhism, Buddhist nun Pema Chodron, 
Paramahasana Yogananda, Catholicism, Rumi, and I will find a way to work in Leonard Cohen. He's my, he's my love in another dimension. I was a super religious kid. I was raised Catholic. I wanted to marry Jesus. And I bolted from Catholicism and went straight into the New Age. Louise Hay and Wayne Dyer. But what was really happening was I just replaced the model of punitive Christian deities in the sky with wellness culture. So I just swapped out the Ten Commandments and I replaced it with the terror of karma, which we're going to talk a lot about in this program, by the way, karma. So around the time when I was managing a bunch of futurists, working in Washington, D.C., running this think tank, really started to dawn on me that self-help could be another form of self-criticism. So eventually I wrote a book called White Hot Truth. Uh, which you can get on audio still. I'm most well known for writing a book, a methodology called the Desire Map. About 400,000 people have gone through the Desire Map process. It turned into a day planner system. It turned into a coaching and facilitating program, a curriculum that's used in 30 plus countries. And that program evolved into what's now called the Heart Centered Leadership Program. So we have 400 coaches and facilitators and youth counselors and yoga teachers and HR directors who are using our heart-centered workshop outlines and conversation starters. And some of that content is going to show up here in Spiritual Essentials. All of my work, particularly with the Desire Map, used to revolve around the question, how do you want to feel? I love that question. It's a useful question. It's a developmental question. On the spiritual path, you got to ask yourself that question. But that's not where we stop. How you want to feel is not the end game. So the question, how do you want to feel, moved into what do you want to embody? What do you want to embody? And that's really the essence of my latest book, How to Be Loving. How to be loving as your heart is breaking open and the world is waking up. I'm full of contradictions. I have dropped mushrooms, and in the same week, I refused painkillers. I have popped blue-green algae <laughs> to pull all-nighters. I have meditated while having a coffee colonic. And let me tell you, if you can meditate with a tube up your butt, you are definitely headed toward enlightenment. I temporarily broke up with the New Age, and I started to date new physics because, you know, everything happens for a reason. I have been the very humble recipient of some healing miracles. I have also been duped and harassed by a so-called energy worker. I have knelt at the feet of some masters. I have asked a Tibetan Buddhist Lama from Toronto <laughs> uh, to teach me about the heart of the matter. And he just told me to recite 100,000 Prajnaparamita Sutras. Om Gate Gate Parasam Gate Bodhisattva. And I had to see that somewhere between the yoga classes and the sutras and the support calls with my shaman and the guided visualizations that my spiritual path had become another to-do list. And I saw that 
there was a conflict between sincere spiritual aspiration and the compulsion to improve. And I was tired. I was still really devoted to knowing more, always more, but mostly I was tired. One morning I had an early therapy session, as one does, on the phone. And after that, I had a meeting with my business lawyer, followed by an interview with a magazine editor who wanted me to give their readers just five easy tips for enlightenment. Like, you know, just the quickies that everybody can do. Mm -hmm. That's how it goes in this business. And that day was ending and I was soaking in my hot bath, you know, with some concoction, of course, of essential oils and mineral sea salts. And I recounted all that I had done that week to be better. Really all that I had been doing for decades to keep my energy in shape. And I thought about what was written in my day planner. Pick up the protein, book the cabin for the writing retreat. There was more energy work and more yoga classes scheduled in. And I looked at myself in the bathroom mirror and I leaned in and my eyes asked me, my soul asked me, but do you feel free? But do you feel free? Do you feel free? Because freedom is it. Freedom's the whole point. So many teachers of mysticism throughout time concur that the reason for spiritual endeavoring is liberation and only liberation, liberation from fear, liberation from restrictive ideologies, liberation from illusion, liberation from suffering, liberation from the anxiety of not being your true self. So free, are you feeling it? Is everything that you are doing to be well and liberated really helping you to be well and liberated? Because if liberation is a chore, then you aren't really free, are you? You can't seek approval on your way to sovereignty. Freedom is not something that you need to earn. You know, joy does not come from a checklist. It does not come from trying to avoid going to hell or getting canceled. Mm. Mm. So now that I'm where I'm at on my personal path, I wonder, you know, could I have just accepted myself much more fully, much sooner? Could I have pared down on all the practices and saved a lot of money on therapy and workshops? Totally. Maybe. Maybe not. I don't know. Because, you know, no mud, no lotus. Self-help culture. Underneath so much of our self-helping, a lot of self-loathing. So we just replace old obsessions with new addictions. And we get stuck in the self-help groundhog day, you know? Like, I'm not good enough yet, but I'll get better. I'll get better at bettering myself. Am I better yet? It's crazy. And we just repeat it. You know, there's a, a Zen sentiment that we are perfect and there is room for improvement. It's both. Of course we want to improve. We want to grow. We want to be better at all things. That's an evolutionary impulse. 
But what's behind the compulsive drive, the compulsive drive to improve? Criticism. Trust me, I know. I am a highly self-critical, self-improvement author. The criticism is the programming. It is baked into the psyche. It's criticism that we absorb from how we are raised. It's the trauma that we carry over from lifetimes. You know, that one time that you're burned at the stake for being inquisitive, that time, it's the old patriarchy still messing with your self-esteem. It seeps in from every single photoshopped image that's telling you that you should be thinner, that you should be curvier, but only in the right places. You should be whiter. You should be browner. You should be perfectly coiffed. You should be perpetually positive as you balance your workout time and your thriving career and you feed your well-behaved children non-genetically modified food. And if you're not making time for all of these things, well, you must not want it badly enough. Maybe what you need is another workshop on finding your passion. There's lots of problems in that. But the big problem is that lots of believed criticism makes for lots of efforting to improve, endless efforting, relentless efforting, ruthless efforting. So what happens when all of the life balance hacks don't actually get you the results that you want? Or when we do get what we set out to achieve, but we feel empty when we get there, we just criticize ourselves even more harshly. All right, we're going to be visited a few times in Spiritual Essentials by Pema Chodron. She says on self-help culture, the problem is that the desire to change is fundamentally a form of aggression toward yourself. The other problem is that our hang-ups, unfortunately or fortunately, contain our wealth. Our neuroses and our wisdom are made out of the same material. If you throw out your neuroses, you also throw out your wisdom. So have you noticed that a lot of women around you who are reading the same books and listening to the same summits on, you know, infinite goddess power and unconditional harmonious love for an unfolding universe in times of change for the modern woman. Those women are all knocking themselves out to do the right spiritual thing, to be more loving, more flexible, more socially responsible, more giving. There's a lot of powerful potential there, right? Right? But the exhaustion of trying to be good is going to get in the way of peace. The real power, the divine power, is getting masked by all that striving. It's like when a friend called me to tell me about her divorce and she said, you know, we're going to do a conscious uncoupling. I just downloaded the audios on it. And I said to her, yeah, but you're leaving him because he's like totally unconscious. What you need is a conscious lawyer. For some women on the path, there's some serious rage and some sorrow that's being buried beneath the guided imagery and all the platitudes about managing your pain. We're going to be talking a lot about this form of spiritual bypassing. Excessive, excessive self-improvement delays getting real. So instead of, you know, medicating with Marlboros and Martinis, maybe we're just doing it with metaphysics and 
microbiome cleanses, if that's even a possible thing. So unlike a substance addiction that we have to drown our pain, the side effects of neurotic psychoanalyzing are really difficult to spot. You know, you don't end up in more rehab from too much therapy. You just end up in more therapy. And there's good news. We're dawning, we're growing, we're expanding, you know. For so many of us, our spiritual devotion is so pure-hearted. We're not bypassing anything. We're using our spirituality to deal directly with every part of our lives, the painful parts and the blissful parts and the mystery of everything in between. You know, we're dancing. We're learning new moves. We're dancing with the divine itself. And part of that dance is we test and we exploit ourselves profusely. And it's not because we're weak or defective. It's because that's what students of life do. We sign up to learn, right? So we give our power away and then we learn how undeniably powerful we are as we take it back. Powerful retrieval, you know, it's an initiation for the brave hearted. Bad choices, bad choices are how we learn to be discerning, how we learn to make good choices. We're experimenting. We're living into our truth. We're growing upward. We're seeing if the Ten Commandments works for us or if the Buddha's eightfold path is going to add up to anything. You know, we're sampling Hinduism. We're pagan curious. We're spiritually promiscuous. Or maybe, you know, we're just totally buttoned up until just that right type of truth or that perfect practice or protocol shows up and then we commit to it with everything we've got. It's brilliant. It's always going to be a good time to do a devotional refresh. Are our practices still effective? Are they still necessary? Is what's worked for a long time still really working? You know, if we lived in traditionally uh, more tribal environments, we might be put through a series of um, more esoteric initiations, you know, to build our inner strength. Men that go into caves, women that learn to see in the dark. But here we are, you know, instead for most of us, our initiations, they, they come with less ritual. They're much less formal. So life might give us a series of, you know, domineering bosses to teach us how to sense deception. Now we learn how to see in the dark. Or maybe we get a health diagnosis and that spurs us to reach into uh, multiple modalities and dimensions to heal the disease. And we learn that we are alchemists. Or maybe there's a child that comes into our lives with special needs and we learn how telepathic we really are. So our initiations may look more pedestrian, but they're just as divinely orchestrated and just as effectual as any rite of passage taken by ordained monks or medicine women. We're all being initiated. The business of spirituality, because it's become a business. I'm in it. 
I'm in the make your life better industry and it is an industry. So many books and blogs and supplements and so many opinions about how to up your mojo and purify your psyche. And I thought often, you know, I wonder if I become jaded from seeing all the motivational stuff <laughs> um, because it pains me that some of the truly masterful spiritual teachers of our time cannot get a book publishing deal because they don't have enough likes on their Instagram page. They don't even know what Instagram is. The self-help space has become another form of entertainment. And in too many cases, it's the loudest voices that are the ones that get listened to. And so many consumers are mistaking volume and repetition for wisdom. And I'm going to contradict myself a bit. Loud cheerleading is not entirely a bad thing, right? Even if it's shallow, even if it's shallow, you know, it's an expression of encouragement. It's a step. It's a step toward looking uh, toward having a more meaningful life. There's no straight lines to wisdom. And it's going to get weird. And it's going to get inspiring all at the same time. You know, the saints and the salesmen, they all have their role to play. And if you think that you have a helpful message of your own to share, then you get yourself a blog, get yourself an Instagram handle, just claim five minutes at your next staff meeting and you just preach because your truth might be the light that lifts someone up that day. We need to hear your voice, a lot of voices. We need to include all of them. We need to hear the ideas that come from people's hearts, you know? We know that humanity is in trouble. We know that the ecosystem is in trouble. Overconsumption and the bees are struggling. It's unsafe to drink a lot of water. And we sell humans to other humans. We still kill in the name of a life-giving God. So many of us are numbed out and gluttonous and greedy. We're suffering and we're waking up because where there is darkness, there is always light. There is always more light. So it's inevitable. It's a fact. We are rising. I can feel us loving with a new kind of urgency. We're getting deeper and we're getting deeper. So some of us are going to live according to our spirit guides or to the Kabbalah. Some of us will live according to the Tao or to ecstatic poetry. Some of us are going to go to spin class. We're going to study scripture. We're going to drink green juice all day long. We're going to do yin. We're going to make some love. We're going to marathon. We are going to mother. We are going to dance. We are going to four count breathe our way to higher love. So I don't think we're gambling on this spiritual thing paying off, not us. <laughs> I think an infinite, infinite number of us are all in and we are answering the call to double down on loving kindness. And this is going to require a devotional refresh, some simplifying so that we can expand. So here's the spiritual essential. It's not how we seek spiritual growth. 
You can practice in any way that your heart calls you to practice. We need to examine the why behind the practice. Our spiritual fulfillment stems from our motives. Are those motives coming from the ego or from the soul? We do not need to focus on fixing ourselves. You do not need to fix yourself. Just focus on living from your heart, from love. And anything that's not in alignment with that loving kindness, that light, it's going to fall away. Okay, I've been resisting doing this for the heart cues, but let's just do it today. Heart cue. Focus on your heart center. Have your breathing be natural. By natural, I mean you inhale and exhale through your nose. Mouth is closed. You focus on the warmth of your heart, kind of golden frequency. And then we set the intention to have the most expanded point of view so that these ideas settle in where they need to. You can breathe your eyes to open. All right. Let's talk about devotion, specifically about devotion and comparison. More specifically about letting go of comparing your spiritual path to anybody else's spiritual path because that's just crazy making. This was my personal trip for a long time and it was extra trippy because I was always comparing my path to like the spiritual extremists, the radicalists, right? So I wasn't looking at what the householders were doing and the moms, but you know, I would look at like these aesthetic Hindus offering up their entire existence in prayer and pilgrimage and just drive myself bonkers with my level of dedication. It's like, I'd look at the sadhus. Anybody know about the sadhus? These, um, these guys who live off really the alms, the generosity of the community, dreadlocked, body painted, loincloth, long nails, you know, and they do these extreme physical acts uh, in order to transcend their bodies. They um, tie a cloth on the end of their penis and hang bricks off of it. <laughs> Hardcore. And so I like criticize myself for wanting like a softer yoga mat. <laughs> Question my whole pain tolerance. I would look into like orthodox monks who kneel for so long on on cliffs and outcroppings of rocks that they become crippled and think, wow, I really need to give her, you know. But then I look at my own community. My friend who gave up sugar for a year, she did not even have ketchup. How can you live? A spiritual life without ketchup. And I would just feel guilty for every time I opened the fridge, vegan, not vegan, all the things. If I wasn't chanting in my car, I felt like I wasn't making the most of my drive time, you know. I understand, I think I understand how renouncing the ego and bodily form is very useful at potentially attaining enlightenment, you know, to truly experience that we are more than the senses of seeing and feeling and that's really where we're all headed so to let go of all of these 
desirous fixations, all these body limitations, um, to let go of seeing yourself as biologically located, that's a great aspiration. And I suspect that in some other incarnation, I have been one of those monks on their knees to the point of being crippled. Okay, so I'm about to name drop to tell you a story. I had a private meeting with His Holiness, the Dalai Lama. It was myself and five other friends. We'd all traveled to Dharamsala in India. And he spoke so sweetly about your path being the path. And if you're Buddhist, just be Buddhist. And if you're born Catholic, just be Catholic. The whole point of any path is that you get to loving kindness. And it really had me rethink the romanticism of looking outside of really my lot in life, my spiritual lot in life. So I'm a householder and I'm a mom and I'm an entrepreneur and I'm a spiritual mutt and I love my male partner and I love being a mom and I earn money and sometimes I'm vegan and sometimes I'm not and sometimes I feel that Jesus the Christ is the love of my life and I dig Netflix and chocolate and this is my path and I am convinced that compassion is the new way. The human is the holy. And the soul is animating our bodies, our lives. I'm always really grateful when I come across stories of spiritual characters who have actually stepped out of the bounds of their spiritual sect in really life-affirming ways, like very inspired by Thomas Merton because uh, I thought he was really hot. <laughs> Mostly, I love a hot monk. <laughs> he was this really much respected Trappist monk, an American, and he fell in love with a nurse who was tending to him. And I read a lot about his romantic religious struggle, which I can really relate to. Uh, he talked about how humbled and confused he was by what he called his weakness, his vulnerability, his passion. And he ended their relationship and committed himself, recommitted himself to his vows. I've read lots of stories about nuns who left the convent for romantic love. I was in my 12th year, 10th, 12th year of really devout vegetarianism when I heard that the Dalai Lama himself, lifelong vegetarian, had started eating beef at his doctor's insistence. Really made me want a cheeseburger. A good friend of mine was on a retreat with a Zen Roshi who had just given apparently this genius teaching on the purity of the mind. And on the break, she caught him sneaking a smoke <laughs> behind the temple. And he was totally unfazed. And he just shrugged, took another drag off a cigarette and said to her, you know, you can't take any of it too seriously. <laughs> that, I think, was probably the best takeaway of that workshop. So what I know in my bones is that for most of us, the greatest growth comes from that mucky, fertile mess 
beautiful chaos called relationships. And when you do the hard work, the beautiful work of loving someone the way they deserve to be loved, you got it. You're on the path. When you go down into the sensuality of being present, you're on the path. When you get into the surprising amount of self-hatred that you are going to find in the basement of your psyche, you're there. When you get into the suffering of feeling helpless, when you get into the toxicity and the ignorance of social structures, you're on the path. When you show up to help yourself and to help others, you're on the path. My experience has been that my life, as much as I've wanted to ascend, you know, the everyday, the relationships just wrench me back down, back into my body, back into my home, just like a million other homes, a zillion other people on earth. Those homes and our lives filled with minutia and temperaments and just, you know, soft, tiny experiences of both joy and pain. So all the practices, the meditation, we're going to talk about it, the yoga, the eating clean, you might find that with some of your practices, there's going to be this push-pull, you know, this despise and adore, just like with all of our relationships, right? You're going to be curious about it. You're going to lean in and then you're going to resist. And I find that for some spiritual practices, my resistance is really an indicator of that's not my right practice. And then for others, if I stay with it, don't leave before the opening, that resistance of the practice melts into affection. And that affection melts into commitment. So if we can just get on the same page for a second and all agree that some form of contemplation is good, <laughs> that moving your body and eating healthy is potentially a spiritual calling, then I have some thoughts for us on going prodigal with your practices and then coming home to the practice. All right, so for a lot of us, we don't really give enough credibility to the spiritual practices we are already doing. We can identify, we can see that, oh, some of the things I'm doing are actually very ritualistic and meaningful. You know, a lot of us have regular habits that are bringing us closer to the soul, to the light. And we should declare those for what they are. They are spiritual rituals. It could just be that quiet moment that you give yourself before you head into a meeting, you know, that breath you take before you pivot. Um, what you're really doing there is maybe communing with your higher guidance, you know. It could be that girl time you have in your living room with hummus and olives and laughs, like women who have been gathering in tents and temples for millennia. It could be working in the garden. You are serving Mother Gaia. It might be important to you what you call your practice, you know. Maybe you're not a, quote, meditator, but I'm going to try and compel you into meditation later on. But every morning, maybe you sit down and you read scriptures with your Earl Grey tea or you're writing in your journal. That is a contemplative practice. 
you could call it that. It might inspire you to keep doing it. Maybe prayer is more your style. And call it a prayer practice, because it is. And then, we keep in mind, as we walk our path, there's no competition. So, I've been doing yoga on and off. This is the operative term here. <laughs> on and off for 30 years. And I have not, well, except for one time. What I was going to say was I have never attended an advanced level class. And that's not because I have progressed so far on my own. It's because, you know, I'm like a perma beginner. There was the one time I misread the schedule and I accidentally attended this advanced class. It was like, it was so hilarious because it was so humiliating. Anyway, that's my yoga path. Nobody else, not even your spiritual teacher or director, no one can quantify the value of your practices for you. It's totally up to us, right? You might get more out of a one-time silent retreat than another practitioner gets from months, years of meditation. This might just be how you're built, wired, and blessed, right? One sincere prayer for one of us could be as effective as hours of prostrations from another monk, someone who needs to burn stuff off, right? You gotta remember, we call it spiritual practice. It's practice. It's about an ongoingness. It's not about permanence. It's not about perfection. There's a sweet little story about Krishnamurti and one of his students. Krishnamurti, another hot prophet that I really love. The student said to him, you know, teacher, I find it impossible to be aware all the time. And Krishnamurti said to him, well, don't be aware all the time. Just be aware in little bits. Little bits is a spiritual path. So even with steady devotion, like real commitment to your growth, you know, your practices are probably going to ebb and flow. It's like, you know, some days you're going to be riding high, you're going to feel like, you know, you are merging with Shiva himself. Um, you might be fasting and you're feeling the pulse of the higher realms. And, you know, on other days, you are just going to be doing what it takes to not feel like shit. So you got to be your kind of devotee, your kind of light worker. Worship what you love and love the way that you worship. Enlightenment for me, my path is left to my day-to-day, -day, a singing kettle. It's my boy singing. It's the hummingbirds in the hummingbird feeder. It's hungry bellies and hungry hearts. And it's the hungry guy on the corner of first and commercial. It's making rice with friends and it's love notes and it's rapture in the marketplace. It's being aware of the veins in my heart and tunnels of choices, everyone leading to the light every single day. And I walk my path with both profundity and practicality. 
My son, when he was little, he flunked one of his swim classes and I was handing him a towel at the community center pool, you know, all shivering and cranky. And I just said, okay, honey, um, just, just breathe in the light. What color light do you need? And he said, mom, praying about green light is not going to make me feel any better. Please just get my backpack and let's go home. Got it. That's practical spirituality. And after years of wanting to ascend, I'm just really grateful to be here. And I hope you can say the same. So how do we nourish our devotion? How do you double down? How do you confirm your commitment? I think it begins with devoting to the higher ideal. It's just, it's this commitment. I want to embody loving kindness. You want to bring those virtues through. And then the devotion, the path, is going to take on a more specific expression. The so-called life purpose is bigger and the specificity of that begins to take shape. So, so commit to the higher and the goal starts to make itself known. So I'm committed to compassion. Oh, then maybe my life purpose is about protecting animals or employing people who make delightful things or I'm committed to inclusive love, divine love. I'm going to get to know my neighbors. I'm going to work on healing land masses. I'm going to do community work. You see, the big filters through to the micro. How do you keep going with your devotion? Buddhist nun, Pema Chodron, always in her very warm, plain speaking way, talks about how many of us spend years taking good care of ourselves and we do the exercise and we do the diet regimes and we get our massages and we do the spiritual practices and all the various forms of meditation. But when we're really challenged by life, we still don't have that true self-love to draw on. She says, all those years don't seem to have added up to the inner strength and kindness for themselves that they need to relate with, with what's happening. When we start to develop unconditional acceptance of ourselves, then we really start taking care of ourselves in a way that pays off. A way that builds inner strength instead of outer dependencies. Really take this in if you can. A way that builds inner strength instead of outer dependencies. That's why we're here to get clear on what our spiritual essentials are a way that expands us, a spiritual path that expands us so that we can accommodate more pain and more joy, a way that actually grows us, doesn't contract us, doesn't punish us. You know, deep growth happens when self-care is a celebration of our goodness and value. That's really the thesis of spiritual essentials. You know, I'm not interested in supporting spiritual growth that's a fixation on what needs to be fixed. I'm interested in a life-affirming attentiveness that steers us inward for the answer. Because I think what happens when you are looking to the heart is eventually you're going to stop looking for signs outside from the universe, you know, signs from the universe that we're loved and we're smart. We look within 
and then we find signs everywhere, inside and outside, that we are love itself. I'm going to give it again. We do not, you do not need to focus on fixing yourself. We focus on living from the heart. And anything that is not in alignment with that light just begins to fall away. Okay, this would not be a program on spiritual essentials unless we brought in some H.P. Blavatsky, Helena Blavatsky. Beautiful quote on the science, really, the science of surrender. So this is from her way out there book called The Secret Doctrine. She said, The Lord Buddha has said that we must not believe a thing said merely because it is said, nor traditions because they have been handed down from antiquity, nor writings by sages, nor the mere authority of our teachers or masters. But we are to believe when the writing, the doctrine, or the saying is corroborated by our own reason and consciousness. So we got to talk about gurus. So guru is a Sanskrit word. First half of it, the gu means darkness. It's the kind of darkness where there is no light. It's just ignorance and confusion. Gu. Gu darkness. Ru means light. The light in which there's the opposite, right? The light in which there is no darkness. The opposite of darkness. Light and clarity. So your guru sandwich, the definition means um, to light the darkness. To light the darkness. Someone who teaches how darkness can be illumined. A master who sheds light on your density, your ignorance, your lack of wisdom. By the way, I learned about this definition from Guru Singh. He's a third generation American yogi, one of my dearest friends. And Guru Singh and I have had lots of conversations about the dynamics of devotion. We really got into the topic of gurus, guru-type figures, and what I would consider, you know, blind devotion. So, you know, my question to him was, does devotion, really true devotion, require that one give themselves over to another person's authority? Because, come on, that cannot be right, you know? And, of course, Guru Singh, you know, gets the drift. He always gets the drift. He talks about devotion being the science of surrender, that it's a state without blocks or barriers. Um, devotion isn't directed toward any one person or anything. And when you don't have those barriers, when you're not fixated on the leader, when you're really open in your devotion, then what happens with openness? You absorb all the knowledge that is available from that moment, from that teaching. So when you're in a state of devotion, you have way fewer defenses. And therefore, you absorb things more absolutely, more fully. Which is to say, um, it's not so much about the guru themselves. It's a lot bigger than that. And this is really, I think, a paradigm-busting concept 
for a lot of worshipers who have hung their hopes on being illuminated by a singular master or thinking that any individual in human form has all of the answers because they don't. Um, and I also fully honor the intimacy of the guru-disciple relationship and how many true blessings that can bring into one's consciousness, for, for sure. I mean, so many masters have walked and do walk this earth who are vibrating the highest frequency of divine love. What a blessing to encounter them. But we have to consider like the subtleties of the guru-follower relationship because I don't think that that dynamic is going to be the hallmark of the age of Aquarius. I think it's one of the structures that is being disassembled. You know, gurus and spiritual authorities are typically positioned to be the recipients of the wisdom that the normies don't have access to and to be the dispensers of that wisdom. And so, you know, obviously this is going to create this setup where the devotee needs to be deemed worthy of receiving the wisdom. But there is wisdom to be gleaned from everywhere if one's heart is open. So that guru-disciple relationship can position people on the outside of their own wisdom, on the outside of divine love even. And that creates a, a setup for us trying to earn our way in. And that is the spiritual striving that I myself am working to dissolve, that we are gathered here in spiritual essentials to try and melt away, you know? Trying to earn your way in, earn divine favor, earn access, earn the blessing is a very different energy than intentionally, consciously opening ourselves up to more knowledge that can definitely be dispensed by great masters, right? So that former way of earning is externally motivated and this latter way that I'm talking about is internally inspired. You know, you feel your own flame and you want to join your light with others. Way different way of living. Working, working for approval takes up a lot of energy. It doesn't matter whether you're trying to get the approval from your athletic coach or your business coach or your guru. It can be a huge distraction from seeing the gifts that you already hold in your own being. So I want to do uh, an imagination practice. We're going to see ourselves in the presence of a, a guru, okay? So see yourself sitting in front of a truly great spiritually gifted master, an avatar, a guru. It can be someone from history. It can be someone you know. It could be an angelic deity that you imagine, all right? And you're facing them. You're in silence. Your eyes are closed. All right. And now imagine that you're trying to earn something from them in their presence. You want, you're craving for this blessing. 
So you're probably projecting out this energy that, um, you know, it's like, see me. You see me? I'm worshiping you. I'm here sitting at your feet. Can you feel my goodness? Can't you feel how earnest I am? So please bless me. Do you feel me? And that cloying kind of anxiety is arising in you, you know, so you're, you're pulling for attention. You want your hunger for approval, which by the way is a very human inclination. You want to feed your hunger for approval and you focus, you focus on how much you want to be given something. And when you're focusing on how much you want to be given something, you're really in a state of lack. And this is the exhaustion formula, right? This creates fatigue, really messes, that clinging, see me, see me, really messes with your ability to concentrate. And I think that reaching is, is going to block your ability to receive that which you want most. The blessings are meant for you. There are so many blessings to be given and received by all of us to each other. All right, take a breath. We're going to shift the energy. So you're still with this great illuminated figure, right? But you're going to shift your intention of getting attention, right? So you're just sitting across from this great being and you're not trying to get anything from them. There is an inkling of a sense of equality you're not seeking approval. You don't need any information. You just simply open. In fact, the intensity of your devotion is actually a devotion to be open. Your energy is saying like, I'm here to be open. I open to this. This is surrender, the capital surrender. You're present, you're spacious, you have a kind of faithful awareness, and then what happens? You can receive whatever wants to be given to you. And what's even more beautiful and important is you can sense that what you're receiving already exists within you, right? This openness enables the exchange of power. No one can give you fire to carry, but when the conditions are right, they can stoke the fire that's already inside you. You, your light, you're the guru. What are we surrendering to ultimately? We're surrendering to the opportunity to become more of ourselves more aware of our own Buddha nature, of our divine essence. There's going to be some power struggles if you bring in masters, right? Devotion, power, leader, follower, so much can go wrong. There are spiritual superhumans. There are magicians. I would stay away from them. And there are luminous leaders. There are some people who work for the light. 
And there are others who say they're light workers, but they work in the shadows. So I believe that there are skilled esoteric technicians who can pull objects out of thin air and out of your body, gold chains and tumors and otherwise. And it's not with that kind of, you know, David Copperfield, a sleight of hand, but it is through the true manipulation of energy and dimensions where some people know how to bring the abstract into dense formation. And in keeping with that, I wholeheartedly believe that there are gifted humans who do things that we consider magical and miraculous, walking through walls and bilocating and performing psychic surgery and curing the supposedly incurable. Multi-dimensional manipulation, highly possible. Inexplicable so-called miracles, yes. Magnificent, yes. Sometimes the work of darkness. Because just because someone can create so-called miracles does not mean that they have pure intentions. I mean, ideally, we're finding someone who can bend time, space, and matter and is doing that on behalf of the benefit of all beings. It's coming from a place of love. It doesn't always work that way. Metaphysical skill does not guarantee spiritual integrity. Buyer beware. There are some very well-branded, apparent light workers who are just darkness peddlers in disguise. They know how to plug into other people's energy and they get a boost for themselves. So they can create a healing effect for the person they're working on, but they're siphoning a bit. You know, it's like, I really love this piece from Nietzsche. He said, they muddy the waters to make it seem deep. So with those kind of characters, um, you know, you might get healed in one area of your body or life, but then something else goes wrong elsewhere. It's like supercharging a car battery, but draining the oil at the same time, you know, you get this injection of energy, but something's not quite right after that with the overall system. So what I'm getting at is you don't need to let the mad metaphysical skills impress you necessarily. Great healing and insight capacities are exquisite gifts for sure, but we have to peer around the curtain, if we can, to see if the wizard's intentions are pure of heart. It's tricky stuff in this space. Quality is really hard to identify. You have to learn to see with both your heart and your intellect, right? And then you need to commit to your faith while still questioning ceaselessly. But really, that's the function of faith, you know? You don't need faith if you have no doubts. What's the function of doubt to bolster your faith? It's a good thing to have doubts along the way. And the bottom line is that it's more important for you to believe in your powers of discernment than to believe in someone else's healing powers. We're all human, even the great healers, of which I have been blessed by many in my life. So 
on one hand, you know, is having flaws and falling into temptation and having a big ego, does that make you a fraud as a healer? No, not necessarily. Just makes you human. This is another thing. Lots of flawed individual with true gifts coming from a heart-centered place. Nobody's perfect. So we shouldn't expect our heroes or our healers to be perfect either, you know? We put gurus and spiritual leaders on pedestals, really I think out of weakness, human weakness, hope of being rescued from the mess that we're in. But we all know that there are some religious leaders who are lovely, but they get carried away with, you know, the luxury living, human. Some cultural revolutionaries break their vows of fidelity, human. Lots of yogis and yoginis who have very dark and disembodied days, human, holy humans. So does this mean that the perfectly spiritual humanitarian role model does not exist? Yes, that's exactly what this means. So how can we have grace for the humanity of spiritual leaders while at the same time holding them to impeccable standards? We need to make dignity and grace part of our intention. We also need to make our definitions of leader and follower and sage and seeker a lot more malleable because we are all both. It's, it's essential to have visionaries in the lead, but we need to expect more from ourselves. And in some respects, we need to expect less from those who are at the so-called helm. Because when, not if, <laughs> but when our leaders and gurus make a misstep, we have the wherewithal to hold them accountable and then to uphold the vision that we both shared and to create a new vision in its place. And then there's the violations, right? So what happens when a spiritual leader violates the sacred relationship that they have with their followers? This gets back to my conversation with Guru Singh and most, you know, well-measured spiritual advisors. There is a huge karmic debt waiting for spiritual teachers who exploit their students. You know, Christians would call this a special place in hell. And if you've been on the receiving end of that kind of abuse of power, I don't know, maybe this is a kind of consolation karmic retribution. I have been on the other side myself of breached metaphysical trust. I felt extreme rage because of that. And eventually when my rage receded, I was able to feel a lot of compassion for the astral felon because they had sentenced themselves to some serious spiritual cleanup duty. They, they had created a towering list of amends to make in this dimension and others, and then some. So holding leaders accountable for destructive behavior is 
intense work. It can tear communities and families apart. Accountability. What if we thought of the whistleblowers and the truth crusaders and some of the activists as healers? What if you as a freedom seeker, as a truth teller, saw yourself as a healer? And then you just keep in mind that sometimes love feels a lot like fire. Okay, well, thanks for listening to Danielle and her wisdom. Certainly, if working toward liberation is feeling like a chore, are you really on the path to being free? I think we can all agree that joy does not come from a checklist. So if Danielle's message is resonating with you, visit onecommune.com essentials to learn more about her five-week masterpiece of a training titled Spiritual Essentials. This community program helps you get clear on what's really serving your path in practice so you can release the rest. Deep dive into what common spiritual terms such as karma, the soul, the ego, spiritual bypassing, virtue, and faith actually mean. Then embark on a devotional refresh to simplify your spiritual practice down to the essentials that are right for you. That's onecommune.com essentials to learn more. And Danielle will be there each week answering your questions. Okay, that's all from the commune for today. My name is Jeff Krasno, and I'm here for you. <laughs>